Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host with Dr. Kenneth, How Kenneth Howell, and we're coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. We're slowly working our way through the Book of Romans, and those of you that have been following us on the internet, I appreciate this, and if, if you uh, would like to to go back and uh, visit some of the old episodes, they're all up there on deepinscripture.com. But we're taking our time working through this wonderful book of Romans because in many ways it deals with issues not only that uh, are often controversial between different Christian traditions, Catholic or non-Catholic, but also it certainly deals with issues that we encounter in our world around us. And, the, and so the question is, how do we interpret it? And do we interpret it correctly? Or are we blind to ways that we are reading into Scripture from our own, either our own theological presumptions or even our own experience? And there's a danger of that. Uh, we might have it correct, but we might be putting a spin on the passage and therefore not conveying what the Lord intended uh, the Apostle Paul to communicate to the Romans back in the first century but why the Holy Spirit has continued to inspire and to use this book now for, uh, for 2,000 years. And Ken, this particular passage, maybe before we get to the email, but just a thought, uh, a comment if you would, that this particular passage in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25, to a certain extent has a controversial history as passages that have caused a conundrum for theologians and interpreters th throughout the history of the church. Yes, that's certainly uh, the case. Uh, even going back into the ancient church, people didn't quite know how to um, understand Paul's language here. I recall that up into, into chapter 6, Paul has been arguing that the law cannot justify uh, and that is the Old Testament law cannot justify and that Abraham and and the great saints of the Old Testament were not justified by by the law but by faith the law being that which reveals God's righteousness his justice his um, his holiness and then in chapter 5 and chapter 6 Paul um, talks about the being baptized into Christ, living a new life in Christ. So he seems to be showing the solutions already in chapters 5 and 6. Now in chapter 7, he seems to kind of be reverting back to talking about something that might be considered the experience of the unregenerate man, or maybe just the unregenerate Jew, when he makes statements like, you know, that uh, I uh, that I'm that I am unable to keep the law, I'm unable to, that the law which is good and holy brings death. And he says, I'm carnal, I'm, 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 I'm a soul under sin, I'm fleshly, I can't even do my own actions. So the question that has come up in time is, does Paul here represent just himself? Does he represent the Jews struggling? Does he represent... Um, <clears throat> Does he represent the unregenerate human being in general, however that regeneration takes place? Um, or does he represent a, a Christian man, a man who has been baptized, a man who is 
under grace, but still struggling with sin. And so this this passage has created a lot of different views of, of what that of what Paul may be talking about here. I wonder if part of the reason that students of Scripture throughout the 2,000 years have struggled with this passage is it also, Ken, because we, we don't want to hear about our spiritual idols having a problem with sin. You know, here's here, here's St. Paul, you know, the great missionary, the, the, the man who gave up everything to follow Christ, uh, and yet then he's admitting, you know, hey, I, I still mess up. And that's been a struggle, you know, when you look at the, the biographies of the saints throughout the ages, the temptation has always been to uh, paint their stories almost as if they were sinless, as if they could never fail, as if they were never right, tempted. Right. And if, or if we hear hear of a right. of a leader like Billy Graham, well, people don't want to to think that he really fails. The or even when when the popes say he goes to confession every week, when well, what's all that about? I mean, that's part of the struggle behind mm-hmm. taking this passage seriously. Yeah, this this passage I think is a is a very um, healthy reminder. Um, let's assume for a moment that Paul is talking about uh, both his experience and the experience in general of a Christian man or woman who, being in Christ, as he says in chapter six, uh, being baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, as he says again in chapter six, of attempting to walk in righteousness nevertheless has this enormous struggle uh, because now the believer knows what is right and yet finds it very, very difficult at times to do that. One thing is for sure, um, if we were to have a, um, a panel of the great saints of the past, I think they would all uh, say, yeah, you know what, I know what Paul's talking about here because I know that the law is holy and the commandment is good and just. And yet I find myself unable to do that. And I don't even understand it. I, I like what Paul says here in this passage when he says that I don't even understand myself. It reminds me of the famous uh, statement of St. Augustine who said, Novarim te, novarim me. Those are the Latin words that mean, may I know you, O God, and may I know myself. Because self-knowledge is essential to the, the spiritual life. Paul here is saying, I realize how much I need God, and I am utterly unable, even as a believer, on my own, uh, to make this progress in holiness. So in a way, I think we should take this as a great encouragement that Paul was very human and very much uh, still struggling with sin, even being the great saint that he was and being trying to be. Two very important uh, historical classic books of spirituality. One is a book called the Philokalia, which is a collection of the writings mm-hmm. of the spiritual writers of the Eastern Church, Orthodoxy as well as mm-hmm. the Eastern Catholic Church. And another book which is maybe next to the Bible the most uh, well-respected spiritual book of all times, which is Thomas Akempis's imitation of Christ. If you read those two books and take them as the witness of men and women who 
are surrendered to Jesus Christ, then verse 24 of Romans 7 must at some time be the regular plea of every single Christian. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is not merely a statement we say long before we know Christ or only once in a while when we recognize we really mess up, but as a constant reminder that we are in this body, it's, which is, we're, we're, we're not trapped in a body, not that Gnostic perspective, but the whole being that we are, body and spirit, struggle mm-hmm. with the temptation of concupiscence to draw us away from God in the spiritual battle. Well, I think you're, you're right to point us to verse 24 because he says here, I am a wretched man. He says, who would deliver me from this body or the body of this death? And by the way, the word body here is used in a broader sense. It doesn't mean just our physical, uh, biological body. It's used in the sense that we speak about, for example, falling bodies, you know. Um, so it's using, it means... Really, what it means is the substance of this death. In other words, in this life, we feel our immortality, uh, sorry, our mortality, our, our, our march toward death every day because we realize, and of course, the older we get, the more we become aware of that. And I've, in talking with my own parents and, and other people uh, that are their age, one of the things I, I realize is that they're becoming very aware of their mortality. When we're young, we don't think about that much. But as we move along in years, we begin to realize. And that's, by the way, a very healthy thing to do, to realize your mortality and the fact that immortality is waiting for us in God. It's a question, as you said, that every true believer will ask. How can I be delivered from this this sense of death or this sense of um, that I'm in a dying world? all the time. And then, of course, he gives the answer in verse 25, that it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the writings of Teresa and Avila and others who talk about the three ways of the spiritual life, moving from, uh, you know, the first stage and then to purgations of the body and purgations of the spirit, this journey, that whole spiritual process is about addressing this very issue. That's what it's about, is about by grace and through surrender Little by little, day by day, going through times of, of darkness, uh, being drawn to God, totally uh, willing to suspend our life in His hands completely and letting go is how one, in fact, is freed from that struggle in verse 24. And as Paul says, it's thanks to Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And that's what the, we're getting into a spiritual life here. I don't know that we'll have time, Ken, to, to delve into that whole aspect, which is frankly above my pay grade. But uh, that's really what Paul's dealing with here. It's not just the battle with should I eat that ice cream or not, but is the spiritual battle. Yeah. And one of the things that those great saints uh, point us to or, or point toward that we need to keep in mind is that the more... Uh, the closer we draw to God, the more deeply we walk in the spiritual life, the more we realize how affected we are by sin. Usually, uh, let, let's take the, the twofold division 
that we say as Catholics in Mass every Sunday, that I confess that I've you know sinned in thought, word, and deed, in what I have done and what I have left undone, what I have failed to do. Now, most of us are aware that is if we have any spiritual enlightenment at all of things that we have done. And so we confess those things. But much more, what's much more difficult is the things which we have left undone. That is to say, the things that we have failed to do, which we should have done, or the sins of omission, those sins of omission are very difficult uh, to identify. Now, what the great spiritual guides show us, people like St. Teresa of Avila, um, Thomas Akempis, uh, and you know, and then the hordes of others that you've, 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 that are out there, and that you've mentioned, these great saints in their writings are showing us that when we deal with a particular problem, maybe a bad habit or a sin or something, there's two things that take place. One is it becomes very difficult to eradicate. The, the, the final remains of that. We may have made a lot of progress, but getting rid of it completely is tough. The second thing that we see is that it throws us back and it threw them back on the grace of God. And it showed to them that even though they had made a lot of progress, there was still an awful lot of progress to go. I think that is both a challenge, that is to say it's sobering to us, but it's also in encouraging in this way. We realize that in, in the end, it's not our power that sanctifies us. It's the grace of God. All we have to have is what Paul says here in several places. You notice he says that he doesn't understand his actions. He, for what he doesn't want to do, he does. And he, he does the very thing that he hates. Now, he says that if I'm doing that, I'm agreeing that what the law says is good. If the law says, you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, he's agreeing. That's good. But yet I fall into those sins. Well, then what he says in verse 17, I think, is significant. He says, then it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. We realize that sin isn't the part of our real nature, not our human nature. That's a deformation of our human nature. Our human nature is to want to do what God wants us to do. That's the grace that God gives us to restore our human nature back to its pristine state that it had in the beginning. So this, in a way, this is a very encouraging statement when he says, look, I realize that the good that I want to do is so hard for me to do. In other words, my identity is identified with the good. It's still the remnants of sin that are hanging on. And that's what the Christian life is all about, trying to overcome those remnants of sin. Yes, Ken, I can think about, especially back in the old fraternity days when I, when I imbibed far too much than I should. But I was going through my own Christian awakening, and I remember the struggle where when I would wake up in the morning with a really bad headache from having a bit too many gin and tonics the night before, and, I, <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, and so I'm realizing, why am I doing this? You know, I don't want to do this. Yeah, uh, yeah You know, yeah. so, you know, I'm not going to have this happen again. Yeah, yeah. And then nighttime comes along. And it was the same old thing. And there it is. And so, you know, I got my mind within my mind. The voices are giving me 15 reasons why it's all right. 
Mm-hmm. And I've forgotten what happened in the morning. And so I have a couple more drinks. And then, I'm, you know, I'm feeling fine. I wake up in the morning. And it's like, wow, what happened? <laughs> you know, and, and, and is that me? Is yeah, that right. me? Or is there a battle inside? And that's what Paul's talking about. It's sin that dwells within me. Well, you see, that's and that's what you gave a great illustration of what Paul, I think, was talking about in chapter six. Given the the metaphysical, the mystical fact that we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection, we have died to sin, and we are alive to God. What he's saying in chapters, he was saying in chapter six, was, look, you've got to think of yourselves now as dead to that sin. Now, you know, alcohol or drugs or whatever it is, these things, the psychologists will tell you that the first key to overcoming these things is not to identify yourself with that, yourself with that thing. In other words, um, it's, it's to say, yeah, in a way you say, well, yeah, you know, like in the AA, I'm a, you know, I'm, hey, I'm Ken, you know, and I'm an alcoholic or something. Well, yeah, but in the end, our humanity is not, you know, that I'm an alcoholic or that I'm a drug addict or whatever it may be, or that I'm a, you know, I'm sexually addicted. That's just an admission that that thing has grabbed hold of us. Yeah. Paul's making that distinction. And that's what you were struggling with back when college, when you were talking about that. Yeah. It, it's, he's saying, I agree in verse 22. He says, I, I agree with the law of God in the inner man. I know that's what's right for me. But it's so hard to struggle with that. And that's one reason, too, why we have to be so hesitant to to judge others, because we know that they may be having that very same struggle, not about that which we're struggling with. It's always easier to judge others about things that we don't struggle with, I think, don't you think? And uh, and um, and so we're not struggling with that. So we can think, oh, why doesn't that person just do X, Y, and Z? And then the problem will be over. And it's so hard because of this concupiscence, this desire to constantly satisfy the self. Well, if, if we use that example that, again, with all that you said, Ken, of, uh, you know, you do something at night and then in the morning you really regret it. And then at night you do it again. And then in the morning you really, you know, that, that whole, and the reason the nighttime is often the worst time is because, well, they, it's interesting that uh, when our Lord was, was uh, betrayed by Judas, the first thing that John says is it was night. Yeah, and it, right, it affirms right. this idea that that's the darkest time to deal with the voices in our lives. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the part of the issue is, <clears throat> that the reason I think that when I would wake up in the morning and, and confront the results of my night before, that I had been changed because I had become aware that this was a bad thing. It wasn't yeah. merely my conscience speaking mm-hmm. forth, though the conscience mm-hmm. was helpful, but my conscience had become formed to realize that those actions were wrong. And that's exactly what Paul is dealing with in this passage, yeah. is that it was the law, when, it, when the law came into his life, all of a sudden Paul began to realize that things that he was doing before that he didn't think were wrong, he realizes that they are wrong, and his mm-hmm. conscience is cut to the quick because it feeds our conscience, 
awakens to God's presence in our conscience to awaken us to be different. And then the battle gets worse, not better. Well, as an illustration of what you're talking about, this battle going on, I remember a priest telling me, he was a priest working at a um, college campus, and and I won't use the language that he used at the occasion, but just to give you a, a sense, he said, you know, these kids are coming to confession and they are, you know, blanking every night, you know. Yeah. And 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 so he was, you know, it was like he was frustrated. But the thought that ran through my mind, well, at least they're coming to confession. Yeah. And <laughs> the sense that they realize what they're doing is wrong and they're they're immersed in this culture of sexual hedonism, you know. And so and to some degree <clears throat> you can humanly understand what they're being tempted by every day of their lives. And yet they're realizing that what they're doing is wrong. That's that's a terrible struggle to be in. There's nothing more beautiful than <clears throat> to come to a place where you're at peace with God. And where you realize that even though you're a sinner, even though you continue to have these struggles. God still loves you. He hasn't changed one bit. It's you that walked away from him, not he from you. And that you can come back to him and receive this grace. And I think that this is what Paul is saying. Um, Paul is struggling here in this text, and yet he realizes that the real answer is in Jesus Christ. And that's still true today. My only wish for our world today uh, is, is that people would take advantage of that grace more often. The grace of confession, the grace of going to Mass more frequently, so that they are reminded and confronted by the realities of grace, so that they can imbibe those things and then, you know, move on within their lives. I, I mean, I, you know, people have often asked me, Kim, why did you decide after, you know, being a minister and being a professor and theology in a Presbyterian school. Why did you become Catholic? I said, well, I needed it. I needed the grace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. all of the honors of, of Christianity and going to hell isn't going to do you any good if you're in hell. You know, <laughs> I needed the grace to become a better man. And I found that grace in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Well, this passage, which Ken and I have been kind of uh, uh, looking at it from a variety of different angles, uh, in my view, is one of the greatest gifts of Scripture. Yeah, it and, is. And, and sadly, it's been a controversy because different theological traditions have battled over it. And I, I, we're not going to have the time to go into all those battles. You, you can go to the Internet and, and see the battles. But the main issue comes down to, is Paul talking about himself now or in the past? And I believe it's because... It seems to me, Ken, and you're the Greek scholar, that what sets apart this passage from everything that came before is that in the second half of verse 7, he begins to use himself as an illustration of everything he's been talking about. Mm -hmm. Up until then, he's been saying, we, we were lost in sin, we did this, Christ did this to us. But in this case, he says, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. And so we get into a passage where Paul is allowing himself to be very vulnerable to this group of Christians that he's never met before over in Rome. Yeah. Yeah. And he's 
it's a bit like Augustine writing his confessions. Yes, it and, is. And mm. it seems to me that we see in this passage from 7 through 25, almost Paul's entire life laid before us. Because if we will back off just a second, I want to remind the audience that in Philippians chapter 3, Paul, once again, re- re- seeing himself as a, an illustration, says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if any man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law of blamelessness. So Paul was a lifelong Jew. He was always a part of the Jewish faith. That does not necessarily mean that when it was Paul was a young adolescent, a young boy, just like how many of us, were really active and strong in our faith. That what Paul says, it seems to me, Ken, if we want to look at this whole passage, that the place to begin is to understand what verse 9 means. That verse 9 seems the, the important part to begin because he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin revived, and I died. So what's Paul dealing with in this? When was Paul alive apart from the law? I think that's the key to understanding the passage. Yeah, well, the the meaning of the terms in this this chapter uh, change slightly. Uh, There's a range of meaning when we use words and we say, you know, a certain thing is, let's say, a couch or something. Well, how many different kinds of couches are there? I think that's what's going on here in verse 9. When he said, I was alive, he meant I was alive without the law in the sense of, you know, I was conscious and I was living my life and I was going on with, with my life. When sin entered, then that was the, I mean, excuse me, when the law, when I became aware of the law, of the commandment, that you shall not covet or you shall not you know, shall not lust, or you shall not, uh, you shall not, we don't have a verb in English, concupiscent or something, but concupiscent, when I shall not have concupiscence. When that law told me that it was wrong, what it did was it stimulated in me the desire to commit the sin, precisely because the root of all sin is rebellion against God. And that is how I died, by rebelling against God. All right, thanks, Ken. Let's pause there. Time for a break. We'll come back in a minute. This is Marcus Grodi and Dr. Kenneth Hall. We're looking at Romans here on Deep in Scripture. Be back with you in a moment. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program. I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1111. 
1-800-227-1175. Thank you. time on The Journey Home, Marcus's guest is revert to Catholicism, Father Greg Poffel. Find out how the Holy Spirit led him back to the Catholic Church and to the priesthood. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, Dr. Kenneth Hall. We're looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. And um, what I'd like to do, uh, we've got about 25 minutes left, and I'd like to, let me read the 7 through 23 first. We've been been discussing this whole passage in a general way, Ken, and um, just before the break, we looked at verse 9, which really kind of sets the stage for introducing this entire passage as Paul uh, being very vulnerable as an example of what life is really like in Christ. Because he may be dealing even then with people that misunderstand what life is like in Christ after we've been uh, saved uh, by grace through faith, justified, now what? Uh, And And really, it seems that he's dealing with that very issue. Let me read from 7 through 13. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not been, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known that what it is to covet. If the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Ken, this this truly relates to the world in which we live in. And some might call the world, they use the term, lawless. Mm-hmm. Now, what are you thinking of there, Marcus? Because that's an interesting comment. Well, if when you Paul, say lawless. When, when people, if we think about Paul, here's what it seems that Paul was saying. That when he was a young man, 
even though he was a Jew brought up in the Jewish faith, and we could translate that to any of us who were brought up in whatever church we were brought up in, Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, whatever. But how many of us are brought up in that church, but as young men and women don't realize what it's all about? We're, we're Christian in name only. And we, uh, we're living our lives, as Paul said, we're alive. And as we are grow, as a result of the culture we live in, our lives begin adapting to the culture around us, doing what everybody else does. And we may not even realize that it's wrong until it's somehow pointed out. Paul says it was the law. And maybe it was his parents, his father. Maybe it was the local synagogue that helped him learn the law. And as he's learning the law, he's having an oh my gosh moment, realizing that the lifestyle he's been living is sinful. And that in the process of that, that sin, on top of that, it even fed the passions of his growing young adolescence to give, put in his mind ideas of doing things that Mayberry never thought about before. I'm as a parent, sometimes I was nervous yeah. about what do I tell my boys and at what point do I tell them or when I'm right, working out right. in a farm and they see two cows, two, you know, two cattle out there doing their thing and dad, and he says, what is that? And yeah. I'm, how much do I tell my son? Because am I feeding him? Yeah. When I see a lawless generation, how many young people by the thousands are living lives in a culture and they just don't realize that what they're doing is sin? Well, it's so easy. I mean, and that is the very nature of, of culture is that we grow up with it. We think it's normal and so forth. And it's easy to look at a, another culture and see something that we disagree with. But it's really hard to look at our own culture uh, and to see that. And that's part <clears throat> of the healthy exposure to the law. Now, remember here Paul says... Uh, the question he's dealing with is, look, <clears throat> does this mean that the law is bad? Uh, I mean, it's it's created this sin within me. Does that mean it's bad? And he, refer, he reaffirms in verse 12, so that the law is holy, the commandment is holy, just or righteous, and good. So it's not the law itself, but it's what it evokes within us. It evokes within us the desire to sin, and that sin eventually brings death. I'm reminded in the words of James when he says that sin, when it is fully grown, conceives death. And so it's the sin that does that. But the reason that God gave us the law explicitly was to show us, as he says in verse 13, was to show us the very heinous nature of what sin is. I think the difficulty that we're facing today is that people can't even distinguish between good and bad anymore. Right. They can't distinguish between sin and goodness anymore. And so we're living in a culture in which that difference has been eradicated. Yeah, and again, uh, the scriptures which we've been given us as the new law, the Beatitudes, are a call mm -hmm. not just to not do certain things, but to do certain things. It's a call to holiness. And that's the yeah, new law. Yeah. And But we have, in the same way that Paul talks about this sin dwelling within us, if we recognize that the sin dwelling within us 
is also described by the phrase the world, the flesh, and the devil uh, mm-hmm. as the, the influence that tries to pull us away from God uh, it, and tries to pull us away from the law, pull us away from the commandments by which we are called to live. We live in a culture that, as you said, wants to call good bad and bad good, wants to denigrate the commandments and to uh, uh, enforce and promote lifestyles that not all that long ago were clearly considered sinful, but are no longer considered sinful. And if you want to raise up the scriptures as a, as a statement against certain lifestyle, then you're, you're belittled as a bigamist or um, as um, mm. intolerant. And you know, there's the battle that we're right. dealing with here. And so we have uh, slowly this generation of people whose conscience is becoming formed in a way that becomes more and more tolerant mm. of things that are unlawful according to the laws of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's where I think we're we're, we're facing, in a sense, a cultural crisis um, that we we need to come to grips with this. One of the things I've become increasingly aware of, um, and this has been uh, to to use the president's uh, phrase, "I've evolved on this issue." Uh, here's uh, here's an issue I've evolved. Here's an issue I've evolved on. When I was a younger man and had, having studied numerous kinds of cultures through linguistics and anthropology and all of that. Um, I sort of, I didn't quite believe it, but I was very tempted to, to believe the sort of equality of all cultures idea. And, and there's a lot of good in, in all cultures. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we should always be thankful for that human diversity that's across the globe. However, there's no doubt about it that some cultures are more warlike. Some cultures are and have been more um, more degrading to the human person. And so if you look at it historically, there's no doubt about it that Marxism, as it was implemented in places like the Soviet Union, in places like Cuba, in other places around the world, the Eastern Bloc countries back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, um, there's no doubt about it, the fact that those were oppressive cultures, right? And and I think we're facing that today with Islam. Um, and there, by the way, there's a number of authors out there that have spoken about this, that the threat from Islam is not an idle threat at all. The question that we're going to have to deal with in the Western world is two th- twofold. Is Western culture worth preserving? And uh, maybe you and I won't see it in our generation, but our children and our grandchildren will see it. There's no doubt about it. Is the Western culture worth preserving? And then the second question is the question that Pope Benedict kept asking the European Union, is Christianity an essential part of this culture? What you're talking about today, Marcus, in terms of the you know, very minimal conscience that people have about evil that's within American, North American culture as well as European culture, I think directly has to do with the lack of exposure to reading the Bible. Yeah. Uh, in America, it started in the 1960s when you and I can probably remember a time, and I do remember vaguely a time when, when the Bible was read in school. 
And it wasn't read so much to impose a religion. It was simply read as a part of the great tradition of the Western world. And when that was taken out of the public school, people no longer had exposure to those things. Um, I think you began to see a serious decline in the moral climate in which we're living. And I remember as a young man, I think it was in the 60s or the 70s, my father, who was not an active believer, but was a true student of history and archaeology. That was his, he loved it. He, he was just a reader, avid reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wow. he, his problem was that a lot of the stuff he had chosen to read were things that challenged the veracity of the scriptures. And I remember him oh. watching a special on television. It may have been the 60s. I think it was 60s or 70s, but it was a special on the, on the Bible and basically, the, the, the program was all about the higher critical challenges to the authenticity of Scripture. And I remember that as a visible time. I was a young man, but I remember my dad basically saying, see, it's not trustworthy. And so we've had this growing challenge to Scripture uh, over the, during our lifetime and the previous generations that have undercut the authority of the word. I couldn't agree more. And if we take, for example, the fact that we now have thousands of adults that consider themselves in their understanding of who they are, uh, their sexuality, in ways that a hundred years ago would have been, would even been questioned as contrary to the word of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have yeah. growing, growing men and women who are becoming public about their new understandings of themselves sexually and what they ought to be able to yeah. do sexually and what marriage means, completely contrary to what Scripture and the church has taught. Now, if our Holy Father just recently emphasized the need to recognize the whispers of the evil one, the devil, and how that can, for example, mm-hmm. convince people that it's better for them to kill themselves uh, if they can't handle life yeah. as it is. Yeah. And so you've got to recognize that this mm-hmm. is not right and that the devil is whispering in our ears. And I believe that part of the reason behind this growth in uh, accepting and being tolerant of otherwise uh, what were considered immoral lifestyles begins with young, very young men and women unaware of the whispers in their ears when they're very, very young, and then beginning when they're very young to have a different view of themselves, but not realizing Mm -hmm. that this view of themselves is contrary to what is true, because the law isn't speaking to them. The law, their, their consciences are not being formed by the laws of God. And so not only are they growing up with a question about who they are as sexual beings, but they're now in a culture that is becoming more and more tolerant of that and affirming their consciences so that those that want to confront them in love to bring them back in line with the teachings of God are con- then considered intolerant. Yeah, yeah. And I wish it were just a matter of tolerance, but I'm afraid it's not. I think there are people that are actively trying to change yeah. the minds of people and pull them away from, the young people, pull them away from any sense of right and wrong. 
And this has been going on for, you know, at least 100 or more years. But now we're beginning to see the fruits of it. We're beginning to see that when you try to define right and wrong according to your own lights or uh, according to your own, um, you know, you might say um, uh, visceral desires, uh, that what happens is that you have a society that is eventually going to... um, eventually going to disintegrate. Now, what Paul is saying here, Romans 7, is that we understand, we who who have been regenerate in Christ and baptism, we who belong to the church, we who have been graced by God, we understand the human struggle. We're not saying that we are better than other people. We're simply saying that that human struggle is something that we all share in. It's the unhappy lot, as it were, of all of us who are still affected by sin. But the key is to do what Paul does here, to recognize that the truth is still holy, as he says in verse 12. Uh, The law is still holy. The commandment is still holy, still righteous, and still good. No matter how far we fall away from the truth, We have to be able to know the truth to be able to come back to it. And there's always hope if a person says, I see the gap between the man I ought to be and the man that I am. There's still hope for that man because he realizes that he's got a journey ahead of him. Whereas a man that does just wallowing around in sin doesn't even know that he's got anywhere to go. He just lives in a day to day and the impulses of the moment. Yeah, that. What we need is this return to the law of God. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say that before us are these two choices. We have the the law of God that tells us what we need to want to be. Uh, And then on the other hand, we have what we want to be. And that's kind of the struggle that Paul's talking about in verses 7 through 13. There was this part of him that wanted something different than what the law and even it, it inspired the battle within him it it fed his passions and uh, there's that struggle but what happens in Christ is as we grow in Christ that in time what we want is what God wants for us our desires do change because our conscience challenges us within so in time we move. Uh, the spiritual writers talk about the movement from servile fear to filial fear. I've mentioned that before, but servile fear of God is I, I don't want, mm-hmm. I better not do this because I might get in trouble. It may not be that I want to be different, but I just know I better not do it because I'll get in trouble with God. To growing to the point says, no, right. I want to be holy. I want God to love me. I want yeah, God yeah. to be. So it's a change. So we move to a point where now as a result of the work of Christ in our life, our desires have changed. We've moved to become more like Christ. But it doesn't mean that the battle's done. As Paul says in Philippians 3, I'm not yet perfect. I've not yet arrived, Paul says in Philippians 3. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, I've got a thorn in my flesh that I want gone, but God doesn't take away. He just says, my grace is sufficient. And there's this battle. And so when we read, I'm going to read verses 14 through 25, Ken, because we've been talking about it, but I... 
we, we need for people to hear that this is the struggle, not just of Paul, but all of us. Once our conscience has been touched by the Spirit and our wants, our desires are to be godlike, which is what we pray for our children, for all of us around us, who to break from a conscience that's unformed to a conscience that's being formed by the Spirit so that they desire to be mm-hmm. different, but that doesn't mean the battle ends. If anything, it gets worse. It becomes more difficult because the enemy does not want to let go of us. Let me read these passages, Ken, and then, and then if you would, uh, uh, give us a little commentary on it. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, Marcus, this uh, passage is um, is important to understand the use of language that, that Paul is using here. And one of those is the word flesh or carnal. Uh, the we, we In English, we use carnal, uh, but it's really the same Greek word, or it's very closely. One is the noun sarx, which is flesh, and the adjective is sarkinos. So when he says in verse 14, I'm carnal, he's saying I'm fleshly. Um, it's important to understand that the meaning of that word. The other word that's really important here is the word law, because he's using it in with slightly different meanings as the passage proceeds. First, the, the word flesh or fleshly here, it's very easy for us to take the simplest meaning of that word and fixate on that and, and miss the subtlety. He's not talking about the physical body here. For example, he says, I'm carnal, sold in her sin. He's not just saying, well, I'm a human being with a body. Verse 17, he says it again. And when he's sinning and doing that which is not right, he says, then it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is in my flesh. He doesn't mean just in his body. What he's saying is the flesh is a mindset. And he's going to talk about this in chapter 8, in the very next chapter. He's going to talk about the mindset according to the flesh. And what he means by that is a mindset that is set just upon the flesh, the material world, 
which means my body and the material world around me. But also, flesh here implies um, an inclination to sin. So and then when he says, I am fleshly, I am carnal, sold under sin, he means that I have this orientation because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. I have this orientation just to fixate upon the material world, just to fixate upon my pleasure, my, you know, in a very hedonistic way, whether that is the misuse of the material world through addiction or whether it's, uh, let's say, uh, greed or uh, whatever it may be. Uh, there's there's a fixation on the material world, and that's what he's saying seems to be ruling me. And yet he realizes that that's not good. And so when he speaks of, for example, in verse 16, he says, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. The law here means the law of God, as summarized in the Ten Commandments. But then he goes on and uses the word law in a slightly different way. Again, in verse 22, you'll notice he says, I delight in the law of God. But in verse 23, but I see in my members another law, and that is the law of sin that he speaks of. And by there, he doesn't mean the laws in the law of God, but he means the laws in a principle. Um, there's, there's a principle of sin that's working within me, which even shows up again in verse 25. He says, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. That is, with this orientation, I seem to be serving this principle of sin over and over again. I think verse 25 is significant because what he's saying is, as you were saying earlier, he's saying, I'm being transformed in the inner man, but my outer man, excuse me, my outer man hasn't quite caught up with the inner man yet. And it's the gap between being transformed on the inside and yet having the remnants of sin, this law of sin, still clinging to me. That's the struggle of the spiritual life. That's the struggle of the moral life. It seems to me, thanks Ken so much, that verses 14 through 25 are something we need to pray happens in our lives and the lives of others. In other words, we want our friends and family and ourselves to have our consciences awakened to the way our lives need to change, to that struggle in which we fail, because only then we'll be driven to our knees to, to proclaim to Lord, what a wretched man that I am. Please, Lord, change me. Help me to be the person you want me to be. And Paul says, in fact, I encourage the readers to look at Galatians chapter 5, to look at, Paul says, that the solution to this battle is the work of the Spirit within us that gives us the fruit of self-discipline. Listen, God bless you. See you again next week.